Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Trinity Reconnected. My name is Jerry Foley. Previous shows have always had three guests, usually from the same class or discipline that they all studied together at college. But today I'm joined by just two 1982 graduates, both women of science. One a pharmacist, the other a doctor. Trinity was just a starting point for fascinating international careers, mainly in the area of public health. Ema Cook is the boss of the European Medicines Agency based in Amsterdam, while Dr. Mary Black is now an honorary professor of medicine at the world-famous St. Andrews University in Scotland. Welcome to the both of you. Thanks very much for joining us. Ema, I'm going to start with you. You had busy times as an undergraduate at Trinity, but you did find time to enjoy the Trinity Board. Yes. Hello, Jerry. Very nice to talk to you. I have to say uh, my first experience of, of the Trinity Ball was just magical. Um, I, I didn't know such a uh, such an event existed. And when they told me you were going, were, there were going to be venues in each of the uh, different parts of the of the the campus, um, I, I I really didn't understand. Um, and it was just magic. Just uh, the, the whole place was lit up. It was like being in a sort of a fairyland. Um, and I tried to go pretty much every year from then on. Yeah, no, it was magical the way the campus was transformed and this inner world. What about you, Mary? Do you remember days at, or nights rather at the Trinity Ball? Oh gosh, do I remember those uh, <laughs> those balls? It, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, coming from Belfast, which was um, a, a much darker place at the time, um, I'd go with Emer's word, which is magical and. Uh, I think the biggest thing was trying to work out who you were going to go with, a gang of friends or a date. And uh, That was kind of tricky, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was navigating that. I think it won. Um, yeah, and, and I did both. I also was privileged to live in Front Square twice. So I lived in um, uh, one of the buildings on Front Square and I lived in the Graduate Memorial Building for years while well, I was really lucky. So my Trinity Balls, those two years, I was on campus. Yeah, um, fantastic. Yeah. Do you remember George's Disco, uh, Amy? Yeah. On the library steps, on the new library oh, steps? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, it was just fantastic. Uh, I never I never had the um privilege of staying on campus. I always used to envy people who stayed on campus. Uh, I mean that's one element of life at Trinity, but on the academic side, both of you obviously did your undergraduate but uh, courses and studies there, but then came back to Trinity. Initially, Ema, you stayed on after qualifying as a pharmacist and did two more years as master. So why were you so keen on sticking with Trinity? Well, you know, I've been thinking about this question a bit, uh, Jerry, because, um, and I, I think maybe people don't actually realise, but there were at that time there was only one pharmacy school in 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 uh, in Ireland, uh, in Southern Ireland, so there weren't a lot of options really, and it was the thing you did if you were going on to do um, post grad, you did it in the pharmacy school, which was part of Trinity. And it was it was it was a very nice community, uh, quite uh, close knit. So there was a lot of attraction with uh, doing it there. But you also went on to do a, uh, an MBA, so you switched over to the business side, which was a different faculty. So your parents were presumably proud of all of your academic achievements, but were they beginning to get worried? Will she ever leave Trinity? 
I, I honestly, I don't think they ever thought of it that way. I mean, at that stage, I was anyway paying my own way. So both for my um, for both postgraduate degrees, I was paying my own way. So I think they were um, they were just happy I was doing something that I wanted to do. And I I had um, I had looked at a number of MBA um, courses, uh, trying to decide which one was the right one, and just the combination of the faculty and the the fact that it was uh, a one year. Um, intensive course just suited me at the time. Absolutely. And Mary, you came back a few years after graduating from Trinity to do your doctorate in Trinity. So again, why pick out Trinity for such a commitment at doctorate level? Oh, it, it's just this odd thing when you do medicine. Um, if you do a medical doctorate, you have to do it in your first university. It's one of these. Uh, ah, didn't realize that. I was living in Serbia at the time and a mum with two kids and trying to mix this in with starting a couple of businesses. So it worked that I could I could study remotely. Um, and to be honest, I probably knew more about my subject than anyone in Trinity, but that's not unusual when you do a doctorate. It's one of these things you find out. You become a real expert in something quite um, niche, Ema, as the executive director of the European Medicines Agency, your last few years have, of course, been dominated by the pandemic, the authorization regulation of vaccines. I mean, it must have been a big challenge dealing with such a huge scale problem and also dealing with 27 different nations. So I have to say it's been both a privilege and a challenge to do this. Um, the challenge at the time was um, it was very real because we we were looking at the vaccines as they were coming through. We were looking at the um, data and very conscious of the huge responsibility we had as a regulatory community to uh, to get these decisions right and make sure that we were uh, delivering safe, effective and quality uh, vaccines for the whole of Europe. And that's a big job. That it really is a big job. So um, it was a great time of um, uh, cooperation, um, working together, really seeing the impact of of your work because it was sometimes we do something and it can take years before we uh we see the outcomes and uh here we were we were really able to see uh the the vaccines go from authorization out to the citizens mary i suppose you had the advantage of being able to draw on incredible international experience but your covert direct hand experience was a frontline role under the Scottish health system. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, I was uh, the first. We formed a new public health agency in Scotland, a national public health agency, on the 1st of April 2020, which was just as the pandemic was um, hitting us. And so I was the um, um, the clinical director of that agency. And here I, I really want to acknowledge the work of EMA and the European Medicines Agency because it's one of those, it's so important to have safe medicines and safe vaccines and the work they did, it, it, it's like you rely on it and you don't know how important it is until something like this hits. You take it for granted. 
So, so we had to speed up pretty well everything we did to suddenly produce uh, data, evidence, research, um, plans to get vac- the biggest vaccine program we've ever done in, in, yeah. in Scotland out. And, you know, incredible hours. I guess I was working 70, 80 hours a week together with all of my team. Ema, I know that one of the challenges for your agency going forward is to be prepared for if, some people say, when the next pandemic comes, and also to look at the broader issue of the possible shortage of medicines. Is that where the focus of your work is now primarily directed to? Well, so I think it's very important to to realise that the uh, COVID um, challenge came on top of our normal work, which was the uh, authorization and supervision of medicines across Europe. So we still managed to authorize 97 medicines in in twi- in in 2021, and only only uh, less than 10 of those were um, COVID related. So there's still a lot of of ongoing work. Um, you know, looking at uh, new therapies, um, oncology is a big uh, um, feature, and new 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 therapeutics for unmet need, rare diseases, um, gene therapy products. So we're we're still we we have a very broad uh, remit. Now we do now have an additional um, uh, remit in the area of. Um, preparedness for public health emergencies and for medicine shortages across Europe. And um, we mobilise centres to allow us to do the clinical trials. We know what sort of clinical trials we would be thinking of. We know what the challenges are. We know what what type of, of results we're expecting. So we now have a mandate to look at all this preparedness uh, for each uh, for critical products um uh do we have a handle on what the risks are and can we 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 mitigate this but yes i'm afraid uh, it's inevitable that that there will be some shortages but what we do now is identify what the critical um uh, medicines are in the context of whatever emergency we're talking about and make sure that we focus our efforts on those ones That's very clear. Mary, a lot of your work in public health has been focused on the importance of real-time data and study of the data. Tell us why that is critical to the future of public health medicine. Oh, it it sits right at the core because, um, well, first of all, the public expects real-time data now. So there's a huge expectation and, and massive appetite for data Decision makers won't see the evidence. My learning from COVID was um, expectations are now set very high on uh, tailored data, available data, data presented in a way people can understand and query. And it's definitely been a thread through my entire career. I, as you know, Jerry, I, I founded, uh, I was one of the founders of a, a data and consulting company, which is now called Beamtree. Um, we produce products that that look at the quality of healthcare and hospital coded data and then use that to to look at things like um untoward effects or errors or just give give a proper picture of the distribution of information across a country and and in fact our products are in every Irish hospital at the moment um i'm also uh, now i now sit on 
two boards that relate to um, climate change and atmospheric science and air quality, and that's the National Centre for Atmospheric Science in the UK and the National Centre for Earth Observation. Um, the second one means I'm now officially in space, which <laughs> I quite like to tell people. But, you know, uh, the, the, the thing we should be worried about now is what is the biggest disaster facing the world, which is um, um, climate change. That's so, indeed, and we have the report from the uh, UN during the week. Both of you, the depth of your knowledge and the breadth of your wisdom really uh, takes my breath away on occasion. But we're going to pause for just a wee moment because as always on Trinity Week Connected, we like to get what was happening in the news in 1982. And those headlines are read, as always, by the former RT newscaster, Clodagh Walsh. On April the 2nd, Argentine forces invaded the Falkland Islands. The British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, responded by launching a huge naval task force to retake the territories. The conflict lasted until the middle of June, when British Marines took back control of the capital, Stanley. 255 British soldiers died during the war, while an estimated 650 Argentinian soldiers were killed. The conflict also led to a deterioration in Anglo-Irish relations after the Taoiseach, Charles Hawhey, refused to support European sanctions against Argentina, saying they were not compatible with Irish neutrality. In other 1982 news, work began on the 128-mile-long Cork-Dublin gas pipeline, then the longest in the country, transporting gas all the way to the capital from the Kinsale gas field. So a war and concern over gas supplies sounds a little bit familiar. Mary, you were all too familiar with the reality of frontline action in a war zone, and that was in Sarajevo. Yes, Jerry. I One of the things I did during that awful war in the countries of former Yugoslavia was set up the medical airlift for people who were wounded or critically ill from Sarajevo during the siege. So... Uh, you can imagine that taxed all my skills of diplomacy, coordination, logistics, and also medicine. In fact, I'm just back from there where I um, caught up with some of the medical staff um, I worked with during that period. We've remained close. And I also have family in the city, which is uh, not many people know that, but I was working in a war zone where my family were affected and uh, I also have family in Belgrade, which, as you know, was bombed by NATO. So when I watch what's happening in Ukraine right now, it feels extremely personal and very close. And uh, surely brings back a lot of memories because you have to evacuate critically injured patients from a war zone. I did. And I also had to field phone calls with relatives who are sheltering in cellar cellars from bombs and uh, see people, the devastation years on from war and how long it takes to rebuild not just bodies but buildings, in fact, lives, and the effect on children who witness that. So, and I brought my, I raised my children in Sarajevo after the war. We came back and I was part of reconstruction buildings and I remember having to teach my children not to walk on the verge on a road because of landmines. Wow. Um, my my sister, when we visited her back in England, she uh, she said, your children are very polite. And I said, uh, 
you sure you've got the right children? Because they're not very polite. <laughs> she said, well, we just ask, can they walk on the lawn? And I said, well, they're worried it's mined. And they've been trained never to walk on grass unless they're told they can. That is astounding. You know, I, I, I mean, we've never experienced anything remotely like that. But to hear such a direct, lasting impact of living and raising your kids in a war zone. I feel from that, 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 you know, the sort of things that I do pale in comparison to the sort of things that Mary, Mary has had to do. Um, and I, I think you need to be faced with the challenges to understand how you're going to deal with them. And I, I have been so lucky in a lot of ways. I haven't, uh, I haven't had these sort of challenges. As we're coming towards the end of the discussion, both of you have worked for the World Health Organization, the European Medicines Agencies, other big public bodies. Ima, how would you describe your your leadership style? And do you feel a responsibility to other women within the organization? If that's not a sexist comment to make, but I think it's important that both of you have played such prominent roles get a sense of how you approach the responsibility of being a leader so yeah i i I always struggle with this a bit jerry because um i'm uh, i'm very proud that i am a woman and i am a pharmacist and i'm irish and i'm in this position but i i i don't think of myself as um you know it's not because i'm a woman it's because i have the skills and and the mindset to do this and i think what uh, the um, message really is about using uh, your skills, uh, whatever they may be, and being having the confidence uh, to do that. And I think maybe women aren't as good at doing that as as uh, as men. And maybe that is a sexist comment. Um, but um, I, I do find that that uh, some of the women I meet, or um, many of the women leaders, they they all doubt themselves in in ways that I don't see um, uh, men doubting themselves. Actually, if I could say, from uh, in my later years in various newsrooms, uh, most of our leaders, news editors, uh, directors of news were uh, women, and there's a more collegiate feel to a newsroom led by women, not always, but quite often, and good at listening, uh, which I think is something us men could learn about. And Mary, what about you in terms of supporting, perhaps mentoring uh, the female scientists of the future? I always think I'm privileged because, you know, I went to Rathmore Grammar School, which was an all-girls school that got a few boys at the last two years I was there, but it was essentially a, a, a school of girls. and. I, I had a mother who broke the bounds and studied medicine and set up the anaesthetic department in Crumlin Children's Hospital, as it was. And I, I just remember one of the women I worked with when I was involved with uh, addressing trafficking was a, a doctor from Moldova who had been trafficked for two years and essentially forced uh, forced to provide sexual services for two years. And she was she'd been re- she she'd escaped and she was trying to fill in the gap in her cv and i was helping her redo her cv i mean that's the most extreme form of mentoring i've ever had to do for a Indeed. so i think i've 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 had so many opportunities that it's my duty to help 
you know, repay that, that what I got back. So I try and for everything I got in terms of a scholarship or a hand up or support, at least repay it three times. And it's, I would agree with Emer. By the way, Emer is clearly a very kick ass leader. Uh, <laughs> whether she's a woman or not, she's someone I admire greatly. Um, it, it's, it's not even just about women, it's about anyone who was didn't have the same chance as I had or is excluded in some way because the world is not fair. So I put my efforts into supporting people who haven't had the same chances that others, including I, have had. But I just want to round off by saying we're recording this on Friday, April the 8th. I noticed that tomorrow, Ema, is your birthday. And uh, last year was a big birthday, as they say. I presume you weren't able to fully enjoy it, given COVID restrictions. Are you planning a a, a good old fun weekend? <laughs> well, I thought this was going to be a, a secret, but unfortunately, when you're in the public eye, there are very <laughs> few. There are very few secrets. Yeah, tomorrow is my sixty um, first birthday. Uh, last one to you, Mary. Are you big on birthdays, or is it just another day in the year now? Um, tomorrow I'm in Oxford and I'm working on my, um, I'm writing a, a memoir about three generations of medi- of doctors in my family, women doctors who span the entire NHS, National Health Service. So tomorrow's my day for working on that. And also I've got, um, I'm talking to editors about my other memoir, Blood and Roses, which uh, was published last year by Fish Publishing and it won the um, the Fish Memoir Prize in Ireland. And it kind of brings together my experiences from Northern Ireland. And, and it, 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 it sounds a bit awful, but it is true. It follows a trail of blood from Northern Ireland to Bosnia and beyond, um, bringing it all together. It, it, it's part of finding my voice to try and make sense of some of the things I've experienced and to use, in a sense, the collective voice I've had to be part of in many of my roles where you speak as part of an organisation. There's also the personal voice. And I think as I approach my my birthdays in my 60s, that's part of me I want to explore because for much of my professional life, I haven't had a personal voice. Well, I hope you feel that this small episode of Trinity Reconnected gave both of you the opportunity to air your professional and your personal voices. I'm really, really grateful for the both of you, given the scale of your responsibilities and how busy your diaries are, for joining us. And to the people who tuned in, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back with another episode of Trinity Reconnected in about two weeks' time. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye.